This is the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast, brought to you by Heather Rose Jones. The show looks at lesbian and sapphic themes in history and literature, and historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past. We present research, interviews, news of the field, book listings, and original historical fiction for your enjoyment. For even more historic research, check out our blog. Welcome to On the Shelf for September 2023. It feels like I just did one of these, so I guess time is flying. September's supposed to feel like autumn, but that's not how my part of California rolls. Instead, we glance around nervously and hope that maybe this year won't be a bad fire year. Then we knock on wood to fend off jinxing things. Of course, lots of parts of the world are dealing with a regular fire season now. Instead of winter, spring, summer, and autumn, my part of California has rain, green, heat, and fire season. My Facebook memories feed has been showing me a constant stream of my last two overseas trips for Worldcon, which is usually scheduled around now. It's been making me yearn for next year when I'll be traveling across the pond again for that event. I'm already starting to make lists of people and places I'd like to see. As usual, I'd like to remind folks that we'll be running a fiction series again next year on the podcast, and the call for submissions is up on the website. Tell everyone you know who might be interested in writing a sapphic historical short story. Once again, I have two author interviews at the end of this episode. It isn't intentional to double up, but that's just how the contacts are working out. I hope I can keep it up, since I really enjoy hosting authors on the show. I'm always interested in being contacted about interviews, especially in the context of book releases. But I also love talking to people about nonfiction relating to sapphic history or historical fiction. The book shopping was plentiful this month. Not specifically books for the blog, which you'll note I haven't said anything about lately because I'm on an inadvertent blog vacation, but several works for deep background research for my own projects or for historical fiction projects in general. First up is the chunky and luxurious exhibition catalog, The Tudors, Art and Majesty in Renaissance England by Elizabeth Clayland and Adam Aker. This was created to accompany an exhibition that's currently in San Francisco, but which many of my friends saw when it was in New York previously. It focuses mostly on the life of the court, with portraits and rich furnishings. While I was picking the catalog up in the museum bookstore, I also snagged Ruth Goodman's How to Be a Tutor, A Dawn to Dusk Guide to Tutor Life. It's a popular-oriented discussion of the everyday life, mostly of ordinary people in Tudor England. I find this sort of work useful for getting my head in a historic space when brainstorming stories, though such guides can vary a bit in reliability on the details, and they almost never touch on anything specifically relevant to queer characters. A similar book, more specifically aimed at authors, is Krista D. Ball's What Kings Ate and Wizards Drank. Despite the title, which suggests that it's pitched at fantasy authors, the focus is on historic food culture of the real world, as something of a reality check for world-building medievalish fantasy settings. So while it may not be a detailed guide to any particular era, it can help set expectations and burst some pro- popular myths. Another exhibition catalog that caught my eye is Seeing Race Before Race, Visual Culture and the Racial Matrix in the Pre-Modern World by Noemi Ndiaye and Leah Markey. 
while the topic fits with my interest in what I call decolonizing my imagination, I'm not sure that this specific text will be useful to me, as it focuses a lot on how racialized artifacts and representations are handled in museum displays and archives. Given the ways I integrate historic magical practices into my Alpenia series, I'm always on the lookout for interesting new books on the history of magic, and this month I picked up two of them. Speculum Lapidum, a Renaissance treatise on the healing properties of gemstones by Camillo Leonardi, translated and edited by Liliana Leopardi, is an edition of a 16th century Italian work on magical gemstones, just the sort of reference book that Antoniette Katzelin would have collected for her work. The second book speaks more to the type of everyday language-based magic that we see in Floodtide. This is Catherine Storm Hindley's Textual Magic, Charms and Written Amulets in Medieval England. It has some great discussions of the how, what, when, and who of magic based on written texts or spoken words. And finally, I picked up the 17th annual volume of the series Medieval Clothing and Textiles, which publishes articles on a wide variety of topics related to that subject. One of the secondary themes of this podcast is women in history doing things that modern people might believe they didn't do, such as the recent episode on female spies. I often pick up books exploring women in specific professions, either generally or focusing on a specific woman. One fascinating book that I did not buy this month is Deanne Williams' Girl Cultural in the Middle Ages and Renaissance a study of women, especially young women, involved in various aspects of dramatic production in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Our image of the medieval and Renaissance stage is often skewed by the fairly unusual situation of public theater during the Elizabethan era, when women were legally prevented from acting on the public stage, resulting in the use of boy actors for female roles. But Williams digs into all manner of historic records to find women as performers, authors, and translators of plays and pageants, including private household entertainments and court masks. I learned about the book on the history podcast, Not Just the Tudors, when they had the author on to talk about it. While listening to the podcast, it occurred to me that I might add theatricals to my series on tropes. I don't know that falling in love in the middle of putting on a play is a particularly common trope in heterosexual romance, but my memory started pulling up any number of examples involving female couples, where the context of gender play on stage creates a space for experiencing and expressing same-sex desire. It touches on some of the same themes as my planned episode on the gender disguise trope, but has enough differences to be worth a separate show. Now let's tackle the new fiction. I have a couple of books to catch up on from earlier months, but mostly this will be August and September releases. When one of this month's interviewees mentioned Ember of a New World by Ishtar Watson from Dark Elves Press, I realized I'd somehow missed including it in the new releases, despite interacting with the author on Mastodon. So here it is now, belated from its April release date. 7,500 years ago, at the dawn of the Western European Neolithic, Ember of the Great River People is a free-spirited woman living in a small tribe in prehistoric Germany when a sign from the gods sends her on an epic quest to the end of the world where the sun sets. With only her wits and her father's obsidian blade, she faces the vast untamed wilds of prehistoric Europe. But those wild lands are far from empty. 
One can find love, death, and adventure in the dark forests of tribal Europe, where only the Mesolithic forest people dare to tread. Well-researched and highly descriptive, Ember of a New World is an inspiring coming-of-age story featuring a non-binary protagonist. Clothing, weapons, rituals, and daily life are described in detail as the reader is transported to the linear pottery culture of the early Western European Neolithic. In the grand tradition of queering Jane Austen, we have Sanditon, The Lesbian Solution by Garnet Marriott and Jane Austen. People are less likely to be familiar with the original text of Sanditon, as it was never finished, though a miniseries has expanded the original draft into a longer story. Here, Garnet Marriott has taken Jane Austen's unfinished Sanditon and retold and completed it as a lesbian romance, also featuring Austen's Lady Susan and the Pride and Prejudices Mr. and Mrs. Darcy and Mr. and Mrs. Bingley. In this version, a carriage accident at Willingdon leads to Charlotte Haywood's invitation to visit Tom Parker's new coastal health resort at Sanditon, where she meets the handsome Sidney Parker, the audacious Sir Edmund Denham, and the beautiful mulatto visitor Miss Constance Lamb, heiress to a fortune. Charlotte and Miss Lamb begin to form an amorous friendship, but when Charlotte's sister Katie is subject to unwanted advances from Sir Edward and Willingdon's Lord Faulkner, there begins a feud which ultimately threatens Sanditon's existence and the future prospects of Charlotte Haywood, who must wrestle with her own emotions and affections while fighting to preserve Tom Parker's vision of a new world. Where Pleasant Fountains Lie, The New Countess Number 3, written under the nom de plume Lady Vanessa S.G., from Pacifico Press, adds to a series giving voice to the female characters in Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. Countess Olivia has married Sebastiano accidentally. She thought he was his sister Viola when Viola was pretending to be a boy. However, until Olivia has sex with him, she can annul her marriage. Today, she will secretly give Sebastiano three tests and then make her final decision. I'm a bit confused by Haven's End, Daughters Under the Black Flag, number two, by Eden Hopewell, because the book identified as number one in the series isn't scheduled to come out until next June. So I don't know what's going on there, whether this story stands on its own or whether you need to have read the first volume, which you evidently can't yet. The cover copy certainly sounds like we're coming in at the middle of a story. Margot O'Shea Flynn's life is anchored by two great loves, her best friend, who she married, Caleb, and her soulmate and love of her life, Elara. Together, the three built a life, raising children and tending a thriving business, but when Caleb's ship is captured by the Spanish while privateering, their world is shattered. Leaving their adult children to manage the family enterprise, Margot and Alara set sail with a pirate crew, driven by grief and a thirst for vengeance against the ruthless Spanish fleet. Their journey is fraught with danger, heartache, and surprises, but their love for each other and Caleb's memory fuels their resolve. As they navigate treacherous waters and face relentless adversaries, the bond between Margot and Alara deepens, becoming their greatest strength and most profound connection. But will their love endure the trials they must face, or will their pursuit of justice lead them to a peril they cannot overcome? The Bird Watchers, by Louise Vetroff from Lura Press, is clearly tagged as a lesbian story, otherwise I might have moved it to the Other Books of Interest section. 
In the mid-19th century United States, fate brings together three people from Louisiana, a bird watcher, a runaway wife, and a little girl, and leads them to a wagon train from Texas to California. Three different characters, with three distinct reasons to leave their homes, have something that unites them, the dream of a better future. Will they struggle to overcome their challenges alone, or receive guidance from unexpected places so they may achieve their collective dream? The supernatural intersects with a heist in The Haunted Diamond by Becky Black from JMS Books. Flapper Bobby Morgan is always a welcome house guest at weekend parties, but the young woman her hosts think is only a jolly fun girl with nothing but dancing and fashion on her mind is actually a jewel thief, and her latest job is to steal a South American diamond with a long and bloody history for a buyer waiting in New York. While Bobby is crossing the Atlantic with a stolen diamond, Yandara, a ghost bound to the cursed stone, manifests with one mission, free herself forever by destroying the diamond. As if the temporarily corporeal thousand-year-old ghost of a trainee witch isn't enough trouble, Bobby's ex-partner and now rival thief, Francis Stryker, is aboard and determined to steal the diamond from her. Bobby and Yandara team up to thwart Francis, and in the ensuing shenanigans become much more to each other than simply temporary allies. But there is no way for both of them to complete their missions. How can they find a way to free Yandara and also allow Bobby to complete a job whose stakes are higher than Yandara knows? The second volume is out in Shelley Parker Chan's epic series set in a semi-historical China. He Who Drowned the World, The Radiant Emperor, number two, from Tor Books. I was very impressed with the first book and have added this to my audiobook queue. Zhu Yuanzhang, the Radiant King, is riding high on her recent victory that tore southern China from its Mongol rulers. Young, ambitious, and in possession of the Mandate of Heaven, Zhu believes utterly in her own capacity to do anything, endure anything, that will allow her to seize the imperial throne from the Mongols and crown herself emperor. But Zhu isn't the only one with imperial ambitions. Her neighbor, the former courtesan Madame Zhang, wants the throne for her husband and her powerful kingdom has the strength and resources to wipe Zhu off the map. The only way for Zhu to defeat Madame Zhang is to gamble everything on a risky alliance with an old enemy, the beautiful, traitorous eunuch general Ouyang. Nearly mad with the grief and guilt of having killed his beloved prince of Henan, Ouyang is alive for only one reason, to enact revenge on his father's killer, the great Khan. His instability soon threatens his partnership with Zhu, who has never felt grief in her life, and Zhu can't imagine what kind of sacrifice could ever cause her to feel it. But all desire costs, and while Zhu has already paid with her body, the true price of her ambitious will break even her ruthless heart. Carving a New Shape by Rhiannon Grant is the topic of one of this month's two interviews. Arriving in a new village on her first-ever training voyage, Lockie immediately feels unsettled by some of the rude and bullying behavior and the loss of her necklace and attracted to Boca, who is both helping and hindering. As they start to work together to escape the situation, will Lockie's naive ideas and Boca's struggles with communication make it impossible to carve out a space in their society which is the perfect shape for them? Set in the Neolithic village of Scarabray and around the Orkney Islands, 
Carving a new shape is an evocative exploration of an ancient society, the power of love, and the ability of humanity to adapt, featuring central characters who would be described today as lesbian, bisexual, and autistic. This is a warm-hearted story which doesn't play down the challenges they face but leads to a happy ending. For Love and Liberty by Eden Hopewell is set in Philadelphia in 1804. Follow the story of Abigail, a young heiress in the early days of the Industrial Revolution, who inherits a textile mill after her mother dies. When she starts to see the harsh working conditions that her employees face, her heart is moved to fight for their rights. Along the way, she meets Sarah, a worker at the mill, who shares her passion for justice. Together, they navigate the challenges of their society and work towards a better future for all. But Abigail struggles with her attraction to Sarah and the societal and personal risks involved in pursuing a relationship with her. But their love deepens despite the risks involved. In the face of danger and opposition, Abigail and Sarah decide to stand up for their love and their cause. Her Duchess by Brooke Winters has a very brief blurb, but it may be sufficient to pique your interest. One Dowager Duchess one schoolteacher, one happily ever after. It's 1871, and the school that Iris works at is closing, forcing her to leave the town that's become her home and the woman she secretly loves. Peggy can't stand the thought of life without her best friend, and she'll do whatever it takes to keep her close. And finally, we have Into the Bright Open, a secret garden remix, remixed classics number eight, by Cherie Dimeline from Fable and Friends. Mary Lennox didn't think about death until the day it knocked politely on her bedroom door and invited itself in. When a terrible accident leaves her orphaned at 15, she is sent to the wilderness of the Georgian Bay to live with an uncle she's never met. At first, the impassive, calculating girl believes this new manor will be just like the one she left in Toronto. Cold isolating, and anything but cheerful, where staff is treated as staff and never like family. But as she slowly allows her heart to open like the first blooms of spring, Mary comes to find that this strange place and its strange people, most of whom are indigenous, self-named half-breeds, may be what she can finally call home. Then one night, Mary discovers Olive, her cousin who has been hidden away in an attic room for years due to a nervous condition. The girls become fast friends, and Mary wonders why this big-hearted girl is being kept out of sight and fed medicine that only makes her feel sicker. When Olive's domineering stepmother returns to the manor, it soon becomes clear that something sinister is going on. With the help of a charming, intoxicatingly vivacious Metis girl named Sophie, Mary begins digging further into family secrets, both wonderful and horrifying, to figure out how to free Olive and some of the answers may lie within the walls of a hidden, overgrown, and long-forgotten garden the girls stumble upon while wandering the wilds. Two books made the Other Books of Interest list for different reasons. The Girl Who Fled the Picture by Jane Anderson from Howe Street Publishing is a bit too coy about the potential queer content to make the main list. A Girl Who Won't Conform a journey across 18th century Europe, a dangerous pursuit of forbidden love. 1742, Constantinople. 15-year-old Isabella dons Turkish dress to pose for her portrait. 
The touch of the artist's apprentice, freeing her from corsets and draping her in sensuous silk, unleashes a passion that changes her life forever. Fleeing to Rome to avoid an arranged marriage, Isabella rebuilds her life, creating beautiful silver jewelry, but love for the apprentice takes her on another journey. She arrives in Scotland just in time for the 1745 Jacobite Rebellion. In the midst of the dangerous intrigue of Bonnie Prince Charlie's court, will the forbidden nature of her secret love see her lose everything? In contrast, The Valkyrie by Kate Hartfield from Harper Voyager isn't coy about the female protagonists being lovers, but it is more mythic than historic, so it too falls in this group. Brynhild is a Valkyrie, shield maiden of the Allfather, chooser of the slain. But now she too has fallen, flightless in her exile. Gudrun is a princess of Burgundy, a daughter of the Rhine, a prize for an invading king, a king whose brother Attila has other plans, and a dragon to call upon. And in the songs to be sung there is another hero, Sigurd, a warrior with a sword sharper than the new moon. As the legends tell, these names are destined to be lovers, fated as enemies. But here on Midgard, legends can be lies. For not all heroes are heroic, nor all monsters monstrous. And a shield maiden may yet find that love is the greatest weapon of all. And what have I been reading? There are several books I've been reading in print, but none that I actually finished last month, so you'll have to wait to hear about them. I've listened to two audiobooks. The Great Rock's Height by Georgette Heyer is a book that is deeply conflicted about exactly what sort of book it's trying to be. This book has been deliberately out of print for much of its existence and is one of the few Heyers that I hadn't previously read. Georgette Heyer more or less writes three types of stories. The light historic romances that she's most famous for, murder mysteries, and a few more serious historic novels that I will confess I have mostly found tedious and dense. I eventually struggled my way through An Infamous Army, which wants to be a historic novel about the Battle of Waterloo, but builds the story around an array of characters from her Regency romances. The Great Rock's Height is set during the reign of King Charles II and is, in essence, a love story, but it's a tragic, asymmetric love story between Lord Rock's Height and King Charles, and between Roxhythe's somewhat naive and priggish secretary and Roxhythe himself. It is suspected that this aspect of the book is what led to its suppression. There is no suggestion at all of any erotic relationships between the three men, but the emotional bonds are portrayed in the language of romantic love, which, although historically accurate for the setting, may have been a bit much for an early 20th century readership. But this isn't a romance novel. It's a slogging, overly detailed tour through Restoration-era politics. And if I hadn't been consuming it as an audiobook, I would never have kept at it long enough to finish. Alas, even the appeal of audiobooks couldn't keep me going through the second title, Catherine Valenti's Space Opera. The premise of the book is, what if the Eurovision Song Contest, but as an interstellar fight for survival? The book's gonzo, madcap, comic narrative style was appealing when I heard the author doing a reading from it, appealing enough to spend an audible credit on it, but it just didn't hold up for me for an entire book's worth of interest. 
There wasn't enough cake under the frosting, and every time I tried to listen, my mind kept wandering away. So let's finish up the show with our author interviews. First up is Rhiannon Grant. I'd like to welcome Rhiannon Grant here to talk about her novel, Carving a New Shape. Welcome, Rhiannon. Thank you. It's good to be here. You have chosen a somewhat unusual setting to write in, both for this book and your previous book, Between Boat and Shore. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write about Neolithic society? Yeah, so I've always been fascinated by prehistory. Um, so I wanted to really try and explore some of these societies that we have some remains from, but we don't know a lot about. Um, so I remember as a kid visiting Cornwall, where we have these stone circles. Obviously, we have Stonehenge and Avebury, the big famous ones. And then a few years ago, I visited Orkney, which is um, islands in Scotland, and was really struck by how good some of the preservation is. These houses that were built with the distinctive local flagstone uh, really almost the way you might have left them as if somebody's coming back with the dresser and the fireplace and the little pit for um keeping your fish fresh in and and all sorts of things like that so when i was thinking about writing a novel and i wanted to write stories that um show people i can relate to i wanted to write stories that give representation and um, and the kinds of stories I want to read, and I was maybe not finding as many of those as I would like. Um, so I set out to write um, in the first place just one novel, and then it's turned into two, and maybe there'll be more. But um, stories that brought those things together, that took that Neolithic setting and said, what could a society be like? given that technology, given that place and time, what could a society be like? And what would it be like to be someone like me, to be lesbian or bi, to be um, trying to build your own community and your um, maybe the kind of family that archaeologists don't always talk about when they say well in this household obviously there were there were room for two adults and some children so we'll assume that was a man and a woman and maybe it was like that and maybe it wasn't so I wanted to um, explore some of those possibilities and see what happened. Yes because archaeology gives us hints and clues about culture mm. but there's a lot of space to fill that out um, you know, one of the things that I'm always fascinated about in writing historical fiction of any era is how the, the evidence gives us the this, this skeleton, but then we need to fill in the flesh and the guts and uh, and the clothing and, and everything. Yeah, and exactly. uh, what, what, kind, what kind of challenge was that for you to, to envision almost a whole society just from a few bare bones? Yeah, I well, I wrote a blog post a while ago where I compared it to writing science fiction. Um, so it, you might set something in the future and say, OK, so if you had time travel, what would that do to society? And in a way, I was 
doing that except with a different set of technology so i have to understand what's available to them they've got um obviously plant materials stone tools but not metal they've got some farming but they're also hunting there um on orkney they seem to have farmed cattle and sheep ahead of introducing pigs for example so i was trying to imagine what's the situation and based on what we have like people built these tombs what would motivate you to do that and one of the things that comes up in the novel is a transition from disposing of the dead in one way so perhaps um, exposing them in trees or putting them into the ocean to burying them in tombs and that does seem to be reflected in the archaeology but there are also there are other clues so I, I read one archaeologist's analysis of the number of people that he thought there were in Orkney in that period and he said this is quite strange because the rate of reproduction doesn't seem to be as high as we would expect for this kind of society at this kind of time. And he speculated that maybe there was abortion or infanticide. And I thought, yes, those could be options, but maybe there was contraception or maybe society was structured differently. And that's made me think, well, actually, there are spaces there where the evidence is supporting something else is going on and then there's space for me as a writer to imagine what that might be yeah one of the tricky aspects of writing queer representation in historic fiction of course is depicting people within their own setting without falling back on modern concepts and labels and you i think you did a really great job of that not only with your your sapphic characters but but with non-binary characters as well and was that a real challenge for you or to to avoid bringing in modernisms there definitely were places where maybe in the first draft it was a bit more modern than i wanted it to be um i think i've been thinking about those sorts of issues for a long time. And I'd been researching prehistory for a long time, and I'd been thinking about different social structures and my academic field is mainly religion, but I've also studied gender and sexuality. So I was able to use um, some anthropological material, some insights from history and from that kind of trying to get into what does it feel like to be in a really different society with a completely different worldview. Um, so I guess that was quite good background for trying to make that move and not have too many modern assumptions. And I'm sure I do still have some modern assumptions, but I've tried to swap them to be not the usual ones. <laughs> so there's a really interesting intersection in your fiction and one that probably most readers would not have picked up on. So you know where I'm going here. So uh, I know in, in the, the culture depicted in Between Boat and Shore, and I'm afraid I haven't had a chance to read the new book yet, but one of the inspirations you used to envision the culture of your fictional vi village was Quakerism. And Quaker theology is something of a focus of your non-fictional work. So could you talk a little bit about how you braided those strands together? 
Yes. So I think one of the things that frustrates me in some depictions of prehistory is that people assume that it must be patriarchal and there's often a focus on violence, for example, in social ordering. And I wanted to say things could be different. Um, And so partly because I'm a Quaker, because my academic field is Quaker studies, I drew on that as a a source of inspiration to say, if you had a prehistoric society that was based on the assumptions that Quakers make about how the world works, what would that look like? So into that space where we don't know what people were doing, we don't know how they looked at things, I used some Quaker assumptions to fill in the gaps and to round out that society so that their decision-making method, for example, is based on Quaker principles rather than on voting or on a mighty's right kind of model or um, something else that maybe is more traditionally depicted in prehistory. And that's one of the things I was thinking of when I said I've still got modern assumptions because obviously Quakers have only been around for a few hundred years and compared to Neolithic Orkney, they're really new. But but there is something interesting about taking those modern assumptions and trying to almost test them by imagining them in a different setting and seeing how that plays out in a story. Yeah, and, and to make it clear for the listeners, it isn't that you go into this and the story is overtly saying, you know, these are Quaker principles. As I said, I, you know, I was raised Quaker, so I I read the book. It's like, whoa, whoa, wait, this is really familiar. But I don't know that somebody who was, you know, not uh, closely familiar with Quaker culture would have had that same reaction. And I know I said something about that in my my review. I, I found it was really interesting because it it does sort of, it, you have to come up with some assumptions to build the culture on. And yes. taking, taking that set of interactions and assumptions, go, as you say, goes in a different direction than maybe the Hollywood stereotypes. Yeah, and I I guess that's another place where maybe my work is closer to some previous work in sci-fi than it might sound like when we talk about this as a historical novel, Um, because that's another place where people have taken Quaker assumptions and said, what would this look like on another planet? Or um, I think Molly Gloss did one where she said, what would it look like if Quakers were on a spaceship? Um, And so there's that kind of... um, uh, yeah, needing to build a society and playing with those ideas. Uh-huh. So let's get back to your new book. Um, what's the story? Who are the people? What are they doing? So the new book is called Carving a New Shape, and the main characters are Lackey, who appears in a very minor role in Between Boat and Shore, and a completely new character called Bocca. Um, So Lackey is quite young. She sets off for the first time on a trading voyage, traveling with Helm, who readers of the first novel will recognize. Uh, And they go to a new village to Lackey, um, which I call Cow Village in the novel, but is based quite closely on Scarab Bray, which is one of those really well-preserved sites in Orkney. And society is organized 
a bit differently in the new village and sometimes in ways that Lack is not terribly comfortable with. But she also meets this young woman, Boca, who is being somewhat excluded within her village. She's got a place and a family, but there are other people, especially some of the people that Lack is expected to work with and get on with, who are not treating Boca well. But the two of them find themselves attracted to one another and interested in one another. And then when Lackey starts to realise how bad things are for Boca and what the difficulties are, she has this brilliant but probably a bit naive idea that she'll rescue Boca um, by taking her away and they'll they'll go back to Otter Village where obviously everything is wonderful because that's Lackey's home and she really likes it there. And Boca agrees to come, but when they get to Otter Village, actually... She doesn't agree with Lackey's assessment that everything is wonderful there. Um, and then they have to find a way forward. What are they going to do next? And so um, that's the other kind of carving. There's a kind of carving in the novel where Boca works on making one of these carved stone balls with a kind of geometrical pattern of knobs over it, which is a, uh, an archaeological artefact that's found in quite a lot of sites in prehistoric Scotland, um, but also a metaphorical sense of carving that they have to create a new space in their society, but also a bit separate from it, doing something a bit different to what other people are doing in order to make a space for themselves. Yes, I really enjoy how you use the the motif of a stranger comes to town in order to to explore your world and to to you know tell the reader about what's going on without you know characters explaining to each other things that everybody knows. Uh, I really enjoyed that technique. Mm. Yeah, it's a classic, but it's a classic for a reason, and it really works for this kind of setting. So I always maintain you can get a clue as to whether you'll like an author's work by what works they like. So would you like to tell us about something that you have read or watched or listened to lately that you've particularly enjoyed? Yeah, so I've read a, a few things recently that I've really enjoyed. Um, and one of them is actually another novel set in European prehistory and featuring queer women. So it might be of interest to listeners to this podcast. Ishtar Watson's novel, Ember of a New World, is not so much a romance, more a coming of age story where the title character, Ember, um, leaves her home village on a mission across Mesolithic Europe. Um, and she encounters lots of different groups and the sorts of challenges that you might expect from travel in that time and place. Um, but Ishtar really uses that as an opportunity, again, to explore the world and the different ways that cultures and um, Ishtar has much more of an interest than me in languages and forms of dress and um, some of those other cultural practices. So I really enjoyed that. And I think people who are interested in this sort of novel might really enjoy that, too. Yeah, it it's fascinating that there there is like an entire micro genre of sapphic prehistoric fiction. And yeah. there was one year um, in the fiction series that I do on the podcast where I got two submissions that year. 
that were set in um one of them was set in the uh, um one of the the french uh Cainton caves in that era yeah. um and i'm i'm trying to remember when the other one was set but uh, similarly and, and mm-hmm. I, I i looked at them and i said i would buy either of these stories but I can't buy both of them because out of four stories, I can't have two prehistoric stories. And that was a real tragedy. Yeah. But it, it's mm. it's an interesting that that is a, a space that multiple authors have come to. Yes. And I wonder how many of us are um, following the footsteps of Clan of the Cave Bear, which obviously kind of shaped that micro genre of prehistoric novels more generally. Um, But I think there is also something fascinating about looking for those points of representation in the really distant past and saying, what could society be like then? And it's also, I mean, feminists have often used the prehistoric past as a place to try and construct alternative possibilities of how human societies can be run. And I think there's something for queer authors doing that as well. Uh So... If people wanted to follow you on social media, where should they look? Well, they could look on most social media platforms and they'd find something. Uh, So at the moment, I'm most active on Facebook. You can look for Rhiannon Grant on Facebook. I'm quite active on TikTok at the moment. I have two TikTok accounts One is called Rhiannon Book Geek, and I talk there about books and about Quakerism and sometimes my books. And I have a more specific TikTok account called Sapphic Prehistory, where I'm just talking about my two books, giving that a go as a TikTok strategy. Um, I also still have what used to be called Twitter, and you can find me there. Um, I've just today set up a Blue Sky account, um, and I'm fairly active on Mastodon at the moment. So you can find me there as Rhiannon Book Geek as well. So we will put links to all of those in the show notes. And thank you so much for sharing your time with the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Our second guest is Catherine Quarmby, talking about a book that was in last month's release announcements. I'd like to welcome Catherine Quarmby to talk about her historic novel, The Low Road. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you very much for having me on. Why don't you start by telling us a little about the book? It's inspired by a real life story, right? Yeah, so I first came across um, the story that became The Low Road in my hometown in Norfolk in East Anglia in the UK. And um, I just found a little stray snippet of information in um, a book of local walks about a woman who'd been buried by the side of the road and um, and she had a surviving daughter. And that was the kind of jumping off point, a kind of inciting incident for the book, um, which ended up spanning three locations and and uh, two continents that goes from uh, Norfolk, England to London to Australia. So tell us about the character. So in the book, um, Anne, who's called Hannah in the book, um, is sent to an orphanage after um, her mother is buried. Uh, by the parish highway in in Norfolk and she's sent to an orphanage in London and effectively grows up in the orphanage and in the orphanage um, and at this point the story runs parallel to the true story she meets another young 
girl, they are girls, they're under 18. And I surmise, and the story um, is that they they fall in love with each other, which happened quite a lot in that particular orphanage. And then they go on a kind of life of not quite Thelma and Louise, but a life of kind of, um, you know, slight criminality um, in London. And um, they end up standing trial at the Old Bailey, which is, of course, iconic, um, one of our most famous kind of courts. And they get put into Newgate, which is one of, you know, Britain's most famous historical prisons. And eventually they're sentenced to be transported to um, Australia. Um, and uh, so I follow that story through. And of course, the question is, because they they sail on different ships, will they ever meet again? And that's the kind of jumping off point for the last third of the book. Uh-huh. Dare I ask if it has a happy ending or is that a spoiler? No, I think it's fine. I thought a lot about this because I feel like it's grim. The London section is quite grim and it's very realistic to what actually happened to the girls in real life and um they you know they're put through the ringer by life as young girls young poor working class girls in the uk would have been at that point and it has what i'd call an authentic ending but it's definitely not sad okay that that's at least some promise so i love how you've taken just the bare bones of some historic facts and then fleshed it out with all of the what ifs and the possibilities. What was that process like for you? Long, I think, because it took me seven years to, to um, from the moment when I found that local walk, um, it took me seven years to for, for the book to reach publication. And that was partly, um, partly to do with what was happening in my life at the time. So I, I'm a journalist at the same time. So I was sort of earning money so I could write. Um, and so I sort of um, I'm not good at sort of doing kind of Anthony Trollope and writing for two hours in the morning and then going off um, and, and doing a working day. I have to have blocks of time to write. Um, and it was partly, I think, because an archival based story is just you have to do a lot of work. You have to do the research and put in the time. And I love research and I love archives. So I'm sure I went through a few down a few what we call rabbit holes in the UK before I kind of worked out. I had all this information and then I need to kind of hack it back into shape, into a into story arc. Yes. And this may seem like a silly question given the topic of my podcast, but what led you to write the story as specifically a queer story? Yeah, um, it's not, um, it's, it's a really important question. So um, what I found both in the um, archives of the Refuge for the Destitute, as the orphanage was called in Hackney in East London. And then again, when women, um, girls and women were transported to Australia was and, and they were also put into these work factories. There were 13 work factories if girls and women weren't immediately assigned was that women had romantic relationships, um, long lasting romantic and obviously very significant relationships with other girls and women. So it's an important strand of, of history that's perhaps only now being re sort of excavated. And um, even though there was a little bit of archive at the time, there were, it was always uh, also cast in a very judgmental way. So it was described as degraded or depraved. And obviously some of that work now is to reclaim those histories and say, well, this happened and people had those feelings that 
you know, men who love men have now and women who love women have now. So there was nothing to be ashamed of, but they lived in a time where they had to hide what they felt about each other. You know, if there's any publications exploring that that reclaiming um, that I could recommend to people. Um, I'll have a think about it. There's, uh, there's not much. I did ask um, a very famous um, uh, academic in the States who's done a lot of work on gay and lesbian history, well, what you'd now call LGBT history, although I don't think the T would have been sort of a factor then. Obviously, it's 200 years ago. But um, she said that there was very little about that history um, that had been sort of, um, you know, written about um by academics to contemporary academics it was quite new there were little traces of it in the historical documents but much less in contemporary say non-fiction or academic works um but there's um it's certainly something that i wanted to explore partly because i couldn't find another book about transportation where that history had been explored and i felt it was a really important strand of same-sex relationships that had been you know forgotten erased well, it sounds like you might be the right person to write that book. Your your list of publications is really varied. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of your nonfiction writing uh, comes out of your career as a journalist, and you're often writing about marginalized people. So how do you see your, your fiction and your nonfiction being reflections of each other? Yeah, I think they are a kind of mirror to each other. And I think if you've written um, nonfiction and long-form journalism, which is a kind of form of um, you know, longer, uh, what, what could be a Kindle single or something like that. So you could obviously publish those as Kindle singles, as I've done occasionally, is that um, you use the nonfiction and the investigative te techniques, or rather I have, as a jumping off point to explore what it's like to use them for fiction. And obviously it's fiction based on facts. So years ago, I worked at the BBC and um, we were trained in this sort of very new and exciting um form of documentary making which was I think called factual drama so it's a sort of paradox and in some ways historical fiction is very similar to that because you're um, Hilary Mantel talks about it really well you're trying to allow yourself to be constrained by historical fact but also you're imagining what people felt like when they were experiencing that historical fact so that's the bit that's the kind of magic isn't it is feeling your way in to that those emotions those senses those tastes and smells from what well, in my case um 200 years ago oh yes and and the other paradox there is certainly on the fiction side you're trying to write this in a way that will then connect with a modern audience while still being true to the characters and setting that may have very different takes on those experiences and emotions. Yes, and you don't want to be anachronistic and imprint today's values on the values of 200 years ago. But the other interesting bit of that, I suppose, is that when you go back in history, you do find these traces of people living um, perhaps private lives, but still quite... Um, authentic lives, I suppose you could say. And um, for instance, here, there's been a real reclaiming of black Georgian history. So the Georgian era is the era that I'm writing about in the 1800s. Um, and you've got great writers like um, the actor Joseph Patterson writing about Ignatius Sancho, who was an actor, who was an all round kind of polymath descended from slaves. 
So he's writing that kind of book, reclaiming Georgian history. And I see this as a reclaiming of um, a history of women who who loved women and also men who loved men, you know, as well, because there's a, a, a much lighter strand of that in the book. But I didn't want that not to be present. Of course, men who loved men 200 years ago in Australia, they were punished much more f- sort of ferociously for that. So I think some men who were found to be um, uh, in, in a relationship with each other, I think they were very badly flogged. And I, I'm almost certain that at least one was hanged. So there was much more ferocious punishment for men. Yeah, that's one of the interesting paradoxes of historical records, that because, you know, in the British legal tradition, that that male homosexual relations were were criminalized in a way that women's were not, we have so much more information about the when and where and what for men. That's such an interesting paradox, isn't it? Because, you know, I suppose most British people would now know about Anne Lister in Halifax, which then became, um, certainly in the UK, a massive hit of Anne, you know, who's a sort of strapping Yorkshire lass and 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 loves women and writes her diaries in code. And then it's decoded very excitingly over 100 years later. And then, you know, this wonderful t- TV series called Gentleman Jack is made about her. And so... That's the kind of history that I'm interested in. But you're always looking for it, looking where, where, you know, where can you find these traces? And that's where archives are so useful, even though the the way in which those relationships will be described is judgmental. The voices are just about there. They're very faint. Yes. Yes. I love archives. And one of the things that strikes me so much when I'm combing through, you know, historic publications, little monographs about I found this thing in the archives is realizing how much queer history is embedded in archives that is waiting to be found or waiting to be found by somebody who considers it interesting and important. Yes, and you can kind of see that starting to happen, but it's still very slow. And and for instance, in the early days of the sort of HIV AIDS activism in the UK, so this back in the 1980s, um, a lot of the archive with the first leaflets of, of that dawning of you know the horror of of HIV AIDS a lot of the leaflets weren't even kept so archives were also lost because people were just living their lives and trying to help each other and so there has to be you're just looking always for those people who are a little bit hoardy and they kind of keep the stuff because you really they're there are archives, there are living archives. And there's a wonderful archive that's being set up at the Bishop Gates Institute in London, which is an archive of the kind of history that we've just been talking about. And, and slowly they're building up those archives of different times in, in the history. Um, so that's quite exciting to see that happening. Yes. And then, you know, we we historians and amateur historians have the job of letting the world out there know that this information exists, that we we can understand history on that type of granular level. Yes, and how best do you then communicate it? I mean, that's the other thing about nonfiction and fiction is, I think, for me, every story is a story, and then you try and work out what is the best way of best representing this story and giving it life. And so I made a conscious decision to tell this as a fictionalized tale because I got I, I had these two bookends of the book. One was this inciting incident right at the beginning of of um you know the main character's life, which is when she sees her mother being buried um 
for this so-called this crime of infanticide, um, which is not even clear if her mother ever committed. And then the the other bookend is that we know in real life that she was transported to what was then called Botany Bay um, by the British in 1828. Um, but the, at that point, so I followed their the archives right through, and then I hit this kind of brick wall. I couldn't get beyond the shipping list like it, the records in Australia are absolutely fantastic but there was no record of this girl having been transported even though I knew she had been and so I had to take a jump into fiction to tell that story and that's what you have to do isn't it suddenly you have to go okay I'm going to do this but it did take a long time because of that well that's lovely so I always like to ask my guests if they'd like to recommend something that they've read or watched or listened to lately that they think uh, that they particularly enjoyed. So I've just finished reading a book by um, Essie Fox, who's again a historical novelist who wrote a book called The Fascination, which is really an exploration, again, of, of people on the margins, which is perhaps why I found it so interesting. In this case, it was um, people who would have then been part of what was then called the Victorian Freak Show. So people who were other, perhaps people who were of restricted growth, or um, in one case in the book, there's a, someone who has a lot of um, hair so there's different impairments and she explores that through again the the kind of values of the time but also by telling the story rather from the gaze from the outside she tells it from the inside to the outside and that's a really clever twist because you see it from the point of view of people who would just think of themselves as being on the margins and I I think it's a really beautiful book. It's also a very beautiful book. So I recommend it just for the sheer pleasure of a beautiful cover. So if people wanted to follow you on social media, where should they go? Um, I'm still on um, X or Twitter at the moment, hanging on there. So that's at Catherine Q. I'm on Facebook at Catherine Hornby Writer. And uh, I also have a website, which is CatherineHornby.com. So I'm quite easy to find. Okay, I will put links to those in the show notes. And thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon.